for those of you who are new to the series, the Bible storyline is able to be summed up in four stages. The creation, the fall of God's creation, God's from Genesis chapter 3 pronouncing judgment on Satan and the snake of the snake crusher coming to crush his head and the snake striking the heel of the snake crusher, the first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. God has been redeeming or redemption. He's been redeeming a people and he is in the process even now in this 2018 of redeeming a people, of gathering a people from all over the globe, all 8 billion people. He is gathering a church, a universal church. This would be one local expression of his large universal church, his people. And one day that church will experience recreation, a new heavens and a new earth, No more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more mourning, no more injustice, no more ugly. I can't wait. And so when I read Revelation, and at the very end, John says, come Lord Jesus, come. Yes, come Lord Jesus, come. Redeem your people, and let's see the new creation come. Let's see it happen, oh God, please. Right now, we find ourselves in a cursed in-between, in the sense of cursed being we're in the fall and redemption part, where the world's ugly, and there's suffering, and there's mystery, and there's a lot that doesn't make sense, and we sin against one another, and others sin against us, and there's atrocities that happen in the world, and things that we would fight against and, and wish weren't so. This is where we find ourselves. It's cursed because, as you can see in the background, this large, looming spirit devil figure, uh, we're told that there is on the loose in the world satanic beings, personal, powerful evil that is specifically against humanity made in God's image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, but more specifically against God's people hell-bent on destroying God's church, causing division, causing us to fight amongst each other, causing us to be so crippled and depressed and bogged down by our own sins that we can't think of anyone else but ourselves, make us ineffective, and ultimately to destroy us. But Satan even hates non-Christians because no matter how broken a non-Christian is, they are still made in the image of God, and he can't stand the image of God. And he wants us, as Paul warned the Galatians, to not do. He wants us to bite and devour one another. And this is much of what we see on the news, isn't it? The biting and the devouring of one another. Well, tonight we're going to talk about government and the abuse of power. And this is a a reality that we face. And we faced it since Genesis chapter 3 the abuse of power. And I want you all to not tune me out to the very end of the message. If you get up and walk out because you're offended in the middle, that's your bad. Okay, I warned you. Listen the whole way through until you want to, you know, kick me off the stage. Fair? Okay. I'm getting half smirks and I'm getting furrowed eyebrows. Okay, so we're going to look at, very clearly, Romans 13, 1-7. The most clearest 
passage in the New Testament about how, how Christians should respond to the government and the governing authorities. Uh, Romans is probably my first favorite book of the Bible. Second is probably the Gospel of John. Third is probably the book of Proverbs. And I have taught through this passage several times, and I know it well, and I'm tempted to spend all my time here, but I'm going to fly through this because I got a lot to say with just a little bit of time. So Romans 13, remember, here's the deal in Romans. Paul is in Corinth, Okay? He is writing from Corinth to the church at Rome. He is, go- he is trying to make his way to Jerusalem at this point in church history to give the gift to the poor Jerusalem saints. He's been collecting, collecting, collecting from all the Gentile churches. He's going to make his way to Jerusalem, and then he's planning to come to Rome. And from Rome, Paul says he wants to go to Spain because he wants to preach the gospel where Christ has not yet been named. And Remember, Rome is the imperial city. It's, if you will, the capital of the Roman Empire. Rome. And the Caesar is ruling from Rome at this time. Do you know who the Caesar is at the time Paul writes the letter to the Romans? Nero. Nero. Now, if you know anything about Nero, you know that this was a wicked foul, disgusting, if we could even call him a human being. And we'll get into some of what he was like in a moment, but this is not Donald Trump. Nero is Trump minus a billion, okay? So Paul writing to Christians to submit to the Roman authorities is nothing in comparison to Paul telling Christians in 2018 to submit to the governing authorities over America. Okay? So it's, it's all preface. Don't leave yet. Right? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay? Now he's writing to Christians. Okay? Non-Christians are rebellious by nature, but guess what? So are Christians. We, by nature, are rebellious. We hate authority. We want autonomy, which means we want to be our own authority. We make the rules. We govern ourselves. And how dare you tell me what to do ever? We naturally, in our sinful state, hate authority. We hate it. That's what sin does. Sin makes the self feel like small g God. And so this sentence from Paul hits with great power to those who are Christians still, because we struggle with submission to authority. Do we not? I mean, we can admit it. We don't like when people tell us what to do or restrain us from doing something we want to do. We don't like that. But Paul says, and remember, this is in light of the first 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters of Romans is gospel, gospel, gospel theology. And then in light of, of the gospel, or as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy, you're up on the mountaintop, you've seen the mercy of God, now in view of God's mercy, let's, let's take some action. And in view of the gospel, Paul says, let every person who calls themselves Christian be subject to the governing authorities. And then, and then he says this, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's crazy. 
What Paul is saying here is that every single human authority has been set up by God himself, even the most corrupt. Now, I know that's hard to receive. It's hard to believe, but we have clarity in Scripture. How could we say that differently? God governs through the governors. God rules through the rulers. God ultimately chooses the president of the United States and the mayor and the senators and the congressmen. God. Now that that poses all kinds of questions in our head because we're like, well, what about all the corruption? And here's what you got to ask. Is there any human being who is not corrupt? Do you know one? Certainly there are levels of corruption, but it If anyone gets into power except for Jesus Christ himself, you have corruption. You get that, right? Because we're all broken, massively broken. Daniel chapter 2, 20 to 23, uh, this is one of the best places, I think, to see this. Okay? This is Daniel. Um, he is one of the young men of Jerusalem who was captured by Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is in his ruling reign, and Nebuchadnezzar is by no means a godly man. In fact, he set himself up as God, demanded to be worshipped, and if you would not worship him, he would execute you, destroy you. And He has this dream, this terrible dream that plagues him, and he wakes up from his dream, and he calls all the diviners, all of the dream interpreters, all of the sorcerers, and he says this to them, not only will you interpret the dream for me, but you will tell me what the dream was. And and panic goes across the the magic community, if you will. Who, Who can do this thing? You're asking the impossible. And he says, fine, I'll execute all of you. All of them are are in death sentence mode. And so if you know the story, word gets back to Daniel and his three friends who are also in this community. And he has his three friends who we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego pray and ask that God would give us the dream and the interpretation. And as Daniel sleeps that night, he gets the dream and the interpretation. And his response to receiving this is this. Listen to this. This is Daniel 2, 20 to 23. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. To you, for you, have given me wisdom and might and, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And did you catch that? You set up kings and you bring kings down. God is the one who sets up authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And watch where he goes next. In light of that truth, therefore, what should we do in response to this crazy revelation that Paul just gave us? Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. In other words, you want to rebel against the authority that God sets up, however corrupt they are, 
you're resisting God. Now, we're going to nuance that later. Obviously, there are times when we must disobey the authorities, especially when they directly contradict God's word. Okay? But if they're not contradicting God's word, we are to submit. And we as Americans don't like that because our country was founded on rebellion. You realize that, right? Like we're declaring independence. You can't rule over us. It's in our air we breathe. Submission is not what we want to wear as a t-shirt. We don't want to be on team submission. Okay? When we read about submission, even within the family in Ephesians chapter 5, we're just like, I don't like this. I wish this wasn't in the Bible. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. For those who resist, incur judgment. Now, this is a general call for Christians to cooperate with the governing authorities as long as they are not commanding you to violate clear biblical commands. Okay? It's a general rule. Governing authorities, listen friends, are a common grace gift of God. They they really are. Because with no governing authorities, you know what happens? Anarchy. And if you want to see what might that look like if anarchy broke out in America, I would encourage you to rent and watch The Book of Eli with Denzel Washington. Anyone ever see that movie? Really good movie. You get a clear picture of what happens when might makes right and power prevails and the self is the governing authority. Only those with the biggest and baddest guns get to create the rules. And listen, what happens when someone breaks into your house? Who are you going to call? What happens when you wake up and your car is stolen? Who are you going to call? I was in my yard one time, and and ironically, I was talking to Eddie on the phone. I like to pace just like I pace when I preach. I'm on the phone. I'm in my bottom yard. I'm pacing back and forth. I think Eddie and I were game planning, church planning. And all of a sudden, my neighbor comes running out of the house with a T-shirt on, no pants, and nothing else under it. And she is screaming at the top of her lungs. And she hides in her little garage inlet, And her violent, angry, screaming boyfriend comes out on the porch, and he is throwing stuff at her from the porch. And I'm like, yo, Eddie, you remember that? Yeah. And I'm like, yo, dude, this is crazy. He comes around the yard and slips and falls, and she comes tearing out onto the street practically naked, and he's got half a shirt on, and he is screaming at the top of his lungs at her. Now, at this point, I'm like, Eddie, should I throw rocks at him? Like, what do I do? Listen. At that point, I think I'm called to do something. Do I pull out my pistol? Do I grab the brick that's in my yard? Or do I call 911? Well, we're not called necessarily to take matters into our own hands. Unless it's absolutely necessary. So I was like, Eddie, I got to call you back. And I hung up the phone and I called 911. And within minutes, the police were there. And by this time, he had grabbed her by the hair, yanked her inside. And I heard crashing and banging. And, and when the police showed up, it was and just nothing. I was watching from out the window. Now, maybe I did the wrong thing. Maybe I did the right thing. But I think the right thing to do is to involve the authorities and not take the law, quote unquote, into your own hands.
Friends, without governing authorities, there is no business transactions. What happens if you go into a store and someone just decides, I like this whole rack of clothes and I don't want to pay for it? Over the shoulder and you walk out. Friends, I, I, I used to be on the wrong side of the law for many, many years. I've been arrested many times. I've got caught shoplifting more than once. I've been pulled over more times than probably most of you put together. I've been searched by police more times than I'd like to admit. And you know what? I was in the wrong almost every time. You want to hear one of the bad ones? I was driving home from Ohio. I'm 17, 18 years old. I was in Sandusky, Ohio. My wife, then girlfriend, and three other friends were in a geoprism. Anyone remember geoprisms, the little things? Idiot Chris is doing a buck 15 with five people in the car, and I'm weaving in and out of traffic on the Ohio Turnpike, and I was going faster than 115. You know how I knew? Because there's a pin that stops the little speedometer thing, and it's bouncing like this off the 115. And I look in the rear view after, who knows, half hour of driving like this. I'm like, is that a police officer? I hit the brakes, and like that police were behind me and I got down to the speed limit and I pulled over and rightly so he was really upset and praise God this is mercy I was in Ohio and this police officer couldn't clock me because he was way back there and by the time he caught me he couldn't clock me so my ticket read reckless driving with speeds excessing 100 miles per hour it was about a $120 ticket, no points, because I was in Ohio. Friends, I could have killed someone else, myself, my wife. And that's just one. I could give you story after story after story of my foolishness. Hiding drugs in the car, driving with alcohol in the car, thieving from stores, thieving from people. It's God's mercy to me that I'm alive and preaching to you right now. Because God is merciful to the wicked. You're looking at a former criminal, friends. And God is merciful. And God was merciful to me. And at the time, as you can imagine, I was not favorable to police. Police came in my house when I was 17 years old and I was in school and they went in the window and they got tipped off by an informant and they raided my room and they took all my drugs and they took all my money and they took all of my paraphernalia and I got pulled into the office and they said, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And I was in the back of a police car like this, headed down to Schumann Center because I was 17 years old. I'd been selling drugs for a year or two and finally got caught up. And friends, I didn't have a favorable disposition towards police. You know why? Because they were my enemy in a sense. They were out to get me. And God has radically changed my heart where now one of my very good friends, two of my very good friends, police officer, former police officer, and my probation officer at the time, I have a, a really good friend who's a, who's a probation officer now. And what, what happened? God radically took a criminal 
regenerated him and made me love the good and hate the evil and see the idiot that I was that should be dead right now. And I could tell you story after story. We could take the rest of the minutes and I could just tell you terrible stories. And, and I don't want to take up the time because we need more Bible than stories. So, verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. Who? The governing authority. He is God's servant. See that? God's servant. For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. Be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. God has given force to government to constrain and contain evil men and women like me. And I have the utmost respect, friends, for the governing authorities now. And I didn't then. And you know why? Because I was on the quote-unquote evil side. And here's, here's what I want to say. I think it's good that government has the authority to clamp down on evil. It's a gift from God. It really is. When the righteous rule, flourishing happens. Okay, now I'm, I'm going I'm to do some nuance at the end here, but you need to know that Paul is saying to these Roman Christians and by extension to us that the governing authorities are God's servants and he has given them the authority to exercise power, weapons, court orders, ankle bracelets, jail, for the good of the whole. I'm going to nuance that in a minute, but you need to know that this is of God. Therefore, verse 5, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, friends, I walked around guilty almost every day, paranoid, looking around, looking in, in the rearview mirror, wondering who was out to get me, and, and for good reason. I had a defiled and plagued conscience because I was not doing right. It's a gift of God that we have a conscience. You know what a conscience is? It's a right and wrong detector. Romans chapter 2 says it's part of you being made in the image of God, and it's part of you having uh, his stamp upon you. You know right and wrong automatically. Now, our consciences are seared, and they're broken and busted, and some of us feel worse about uh, recycling than we do about stealing. Like, our consciences are weird and broken, but we still understand morality, which points to a higher moral law and higher moral law giver. One must be in subjection. Only when laws do not clearly violate biblical commands. Verse 6, For because of this, you also pay taxes. Dag, why do you have to include that verse? For the authorities are ministers of God, 
attending to this very thing. Now, you know that Rome was horrible extortioners. I mean, they took way more than what your federal government takes off you. And if they wanted, they had the authority to just take a little more if they wanted to. Not a clean government, not a clean system. Whoever has the power gets to take, to take. Jesus defined being a disciple this way in Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Part of Christian discipleship, friends, is paying your taxes, believe it or not. How do I know that? Well, because Jesus in Mark (laughs) says this. This is Mark 12, 14. The leaders are trying to trap him, and they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And then Jesus answers, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, I left a lot out there, but Jesus calls for a coin and he says, whose image is on it? It's icon. Whose icon is on the coin? And it was Caesar. It was literally minted from his money. And he says, give to Caesar what has his image on it and give to God what has his image on it, which is us. And in one sense, Jesus is limiting Caesar, isn't he? He's saying, you're not his. That coin in your pocket might be his, literally, out of his wealth. But you are God's. That is why when governing authorities overstep biblical clarity, we must violate. We must. We'll see it in a moment here. What do our taxes go to? Well, Pew Research Uh, last April put this percentage together. 24% goes to Social Security, 15% goes to Medicare, 15% goes to defense, 13% goes to health, 13% goes to income security, 6% goes to net interest, that's the money, the interest the government owes, and 5% goes to veterans' benefits, 6% other, 3% education. That's where your federal taxes are going. Now, you might not agree with how the government spends your money. Most of us don't. But that doesn't excuse you from paying your taxes. And most of us feel justified in hiding money. Right? We're like, I don't agree with what they do with my money. And so you feel okay about hiding your tips or hiding your small jobs you do on the side. Or, friends, as a Christian disciple... You are glorifying God by paying your taxes. Believe it or not, it's Christian discipleship. Teach them to obey all I've commanded. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And friends, I am of the view that to be good stewards in our system, yes, we claim everything. If I go to a church and speak and I get $100 as an honorarium, I don't hide it. I claim it on my taxes. But you know what else I do? I take every single tax advantage that I can find. And you know what? I take so many that I end up not owing. And I do it all legally. It takes work. It takes effort. But you know what? I can, with a clear conscience, go to bed at night and say, you know what? I've kept this command, and I am living as a disciple of Christ, and I'm living as a pastoral elder that others could follow. I don't have shady money floating around. 
I know that's hard to hear, especially because April 15th is coming, like real soon. But friends, it is Christian to pay your taxes and not hide your money. Paul wrote, as I said earlier, as Nero was in power. Now, at the time Paul wrote this, it was, you know, 56 to 58-ish when Paul wrote this, A.D., and Nero didn't start getting absolutely insane till after Paul wrote this. But you need to know that this letter was in circulation as Nero was at the height of his wickedness and satanic fury. Let me read you from Hank Hanegraaff's Apocalypse Code book. I don't know, have any, any read that book? It's, it's a little old, it's 10 years old. No? Okay. It's, a, it's a hermeneutics book, but it's also an end times book. And Hank has no problem putting his, his cards on the table. He's an amillennialist. And he thinks that Nero was the beast warned of in the book of Revelation. And for good reason. So let me read you a couple paragraphs. If you're queasy, plug your ears. As the historically literate well know, the beast of Revelation, who determined to slaughter the bride of the lamb, was a maniacal megalomaniac who built the statue to himself more than 100 feet tall and enshrined it in the Roman temple of Mars. Nero, demanded to be worshipped as almighty God and savior, castrated a young boy named Sporus and married him with pomp and ceremony, delighting in homosexual rape and sodomy, kicked his pregnant wife, Poppea, to death and exhausted the imperial treasury on his own personal pleasures. Nero falsely accused the early Christians as the cause of the great fire of Rome and subjected them to the most exquisite tortures. He's had them covered in the skins of beasts, torn by dogs, nailed to crosses, and burned to serve as nightly illumination. He also prostituted his own chastity after defiling almost every part of his body. He at last devised a sick kind of game in which he in which covered with the skin of some wild animal, he was let loose from a cage and attacked the private parts of men and women who were bound to stakes. Talk about wickedness. Submit to the governing authorities? This is written to Rome. Nero was ruling from Rome, friends. I mean, is this crazy? But you know what? God sets up wicked rulers for judgment. Sometimes God wants to judge a people and he gifts them with wicked rulers. How do we take rest with such evil and real injustices in our day? That's a good question. How do we rest? Well, we can rest because a chapter earlier, Paul said this, Romans 12, 17 to 21, repay no one evil for evil. So someone comes at you and does an evil to you, you are not to repay that evil with evil. You leave that to the governing authorities. They have been given a sword. They have been given the, um, the terror that they can inflict. Okay, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Do what is good and you'll receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Okay, so the 
the ability to exercise authority and judgment has been given to authorities for a reason. You, you should and must, when you see evil, you must involve the authorities, but you are not the authority. We are not to inflict wrath as wrath has been inflicted on us. Listen, Romans 12, 17 to 21, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Think about what can I do that is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love that. That means that not everybody you meet, you will be able to live peaceably with. It's just a reality. God doesn't expect that. But what he does expect is for you to live peaceably as far as it depends on you. If you've done all you can do, guess what? You've done all you can do. And now it's on them. You've fulfilled your biblical mandate. Behold, or I'm sorry, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Notice, he is the avenger. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Either an image of burning coals being carried on the head as, as shame, or ancient warfare dumping coals over the wall as weapons. But the way that we would exercise the burning coals is by feeding and giving drink and being kind and peaceable. Hmm. Do not be overcome by evil, but listen to this, overcome evil with good. Friends, we are not to be taken in to the cycle of violence that exists in so many countries. We are to remember that God is our avenger and he will right every wrong. Friends, no one, even me, is going to get away with anything. You're not getting away with anything. No one out there is getting away with anything. God will exact perfect justice and his wrath will come upon all evil. His wrath has either come upon Jesus Christ on the cross and Jesus absorbed it in the place of all those who would trust in him and their justice was met on the cross as Jesus was smashed in their place or God's wrath is being stored up. And as John the Baptist said in John 3.36, whoever does not believe, God's wrath remains on them. Remains on them. Friends, no one's getting away with anything. And if you believe what the scriptures clearly reveal, there will be a day of reckoning. That's how you can rest. That's how you can sleep easy because you have a God who is keeping account, who is just and perfect and knows exactly what the right kind of consequence should be. Abraham said to God as God was about to go down and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, Will not the God of all the earth do right? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. And you can rest in that the God of all the earth will do right. He will do right. There is such a thing as the abuse of power. 
And I want to, for our context, I just want to say this. Friends, when it comes to African Americans and police, we should not buy into the binary system that is being thrust upon us. What do you mean by that? I mean, if I'm for Black Lives Matter, that means I'm automatically against police. And if I'm for Blue Lives Matter, I'm automatically against African Americans. That's garbage. We should not buy that system. We should be both for African Americans and police. You know why? Because both are image bearers of the living God. So, not that you would necessarily support the organizations, but you should be able to wear a Black Lives Matter shirt and a Blue Lives Matter shirt. You know why? Because they both matter. And we should not buy into the cultures pitting us against each other. Are there, listen friends, are there racist, abusive, power-hungry police? Absolutely. Does that mean all police are abusive, racist, and power-hungry? No. In the same way, are there criminal-minded African Americans? Absolutely. Does that mean all African Americans are criminals and criminal minds? Absolutely not. Friends, let's not lump everybody in to the same category. Let's reject that whole thing. Are we good with that? Let's not buy into this garbage that's thrust upon us. Here's a real-life example of what I'm talking about. I think this is satanic. And I think that uh, a good illustration would be what Russia has done to the United States recently. Are you familiar with this? I'm going to read real quick from the New York Times. Uh, This was about a month ago. This is 13 Russians indicted uh, as Mueller reveals effort to aid Trump campaign. Okay? Now, Trump and his campaign, has, has not, they've not been found to be involved in any way. But the Russians certainly have been involved to mess with the election. That's clear. Now, listen to this. This is from the New York Times article on February 16th, 2018. The Russians stole the identities of American citizens, posed as political activists, and used the flashpoints of immigration, religion, and race to manipulate a campaign in which those issues are already particularly divisive, prosecutors said. Russian computer specialists divided into day teams and night teams created hundreds of social media accounts that eventually attracted hundreds of thousands of online followers. They posed as Christian activists, anti-immigration groups, supporters of Black Lives Matter's movement, and one account posed as the Tennessee Republican Party and generated hundreds of thousands of followers. Reporting on this fake news, Al Mohler said this, Russians are charged with a clear, very clear organized conspiracy, not just to involve themselves in elections, but also to divide Americans in such a way as to weaken the American democratic system or the democracy process. Friends, you don't think that Satan is actively at work trying to get us to war with each other? You know what? I I think one of the most beautiful things about our church is that we have 
police officers in here, parole officer in here, former police officer in here, and beloved African-Americans. We are a testimony to the fact that we are not buying this binary garbage. You know what one of the, the former police officers in here did? I, I, this is a, a heroic story. We hear all the bad stories. Here's a heroic one. Right in New Ken, off of Constitution Boulevard, right by the land bridge, uh, a friend in this room who was a former police officer in New Ken was shots fired, immediately got to the house. It was a drug issue. There was shots going off in the house, and he found a four-year-old little African-American girl shot on her bed. You know what he did? The paramedics weren't showing up, so he grabbed her in his arms, and he had his partner drive as fast as they could to the hospital, and he demanded that the doctor get on this immediately, and they saved the girl. You don't see that spreading all over the internet, do you? Friends, you need to know that what you see all over Facebook and all over the news is intentionally there. And the plot is that we would bite and devour one another. And we would live in fear of one another. And that we would imagine that everyone's plotting to get us. And we as Christians need to lead the way and say, no, we're not having it. Can we, can we be those Christians? I've got a couple minutes left. Let's, let's think about real quick, when is it right to disobey the governing authorities? Well, in the Bible, this happens over and over and over and over again. Hey, here's a good one. I only have time for one, so here's a good one. You remember the Exodus story? Exodus chapter 1, Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, Joseph is one of those sons, his brothers betray him out of jealousy and they sell him into slavery into Egypt, he gets into Egypt and he's uh, at a man named Potiphar's house and he becomes so uh, proficient that he gets put in charge of all the affairs and the wife wants to sleep with him but he won't sleep with her and it happens over and over and over again until finally she gets him in the house by himself, grabs him, he runs away, she got his clothes and she screams, he tried to rape me. Authorities come, he gets thrown into prison. He has so much favor in the prison that they put him in charge of the whole prison. And the baker and I think it's the cupbearer show up in prison and he interprets their dreams. One will make it, one will die. And he says, please remember me when you go before Pharaoh. And two years later, Pharaoh has a dream that he cannot interpret. Joseph shows back up. He interprets the dream. He then says in the interpretation of the dream, you should put a wise man in charge of all Egypt, implying, hey, I just told you what the dream means and what's going to happen. I'm that guy. And he does. He puts him in charge of all of Egypt. He's second in command under Pharaoh. And he has all this favor, and he brings his family down uh, into Egypt where there's food, and there's famine all over the, the, the land there. And Jacob dies, the father. And the brothers who betrayed him are fearful of their life now, and they show up, and they have this story about, hey, dad said, please don't hurt us. And, and he's like, look, am I in the place of God? What you meant for evil... God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. But then, multiplication happens of the Hebrew people, and another Pharaoh rises to power who's intimidated by their 
fruitfulness. And that's where we pick up in Exodus. I'm going to read very quickly Exodus 1.12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. So what happens is the, the, the Pharaoh says, I'm going to oppress these people and I'm going to make them work for me. Free labor, enslavement. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, these would be like delivery nurses, when one, when one, of, whom, one of whom was named uh, Sifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if, is it a, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. So this is, a, this is one of the most clear places in the Bible where you could say, if the government is forcing you to do unjust things to other people, you are morally obligated to not listen to the government and rather do what the Lord would reveal in his word. They refused to kill the babies, and rather they put their own lives in jeopardy. Let's read that. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. They're just so fast, but as we're coming in the door, we hear cries. <laughs> and you could just see the Pharaoh like, oh, okay. And because the midwives feared God, he blessed them, right? He, he gave them families. 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, listen to this, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Genocide is commanded. And then in Exodus 2, 1 to 3, we see more civil disobedience. Moses. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife, his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him in a basket made of uh, bulrushes and daubed it with uh, bitumen and pitch. It's like a, a waterproof sealant. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And then the whole story of Exodus is Moses challenging the wicked, oppressing authority, saying, you shall not, and if you do, God's wrath is coming upon you. And plague after plague after plague. You know the story. But it's one long story of God inflicting his wrath on an unjust ruler and multiple civil disobedience after civil disobedience after civil disobedience. It happens when the apostles are commanded to no longer preach in this name. And they said, Shall we obey God or man? We must obey God rather than man. And there clearly are times Daniel in the book of Daniel is commanded to no longer pray. 
Only the king is to be prayed to. And Daniel says, no, 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 I'm not doing that. And so he prays in violation of the authority's commands. There are clear times in the scriptures. I think that you know, the, the whole civil rights issue led by king, that was, that was clearly warranted civil disobedience. And it was peaceful and nonviolent. Okay? And it was successful. Nonviolent civil disobedience at times is necessary when injustice is prevailing. Okay? There are times when we do not obey the governing authorities. When? When Scripture is clearly being violated. Proverbs 29.2 says this. This is the Christian Standard Bible. When the righteous flourish, listen friends, when the righteous flourish, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, people groan. ESV translates it this way. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. You see, if we would actually live as Christians and we would multiply, you know what that would cause? Good for the whole. I was at a conference one time with Eddie, um, and it was an urban apologetics conference. We were talking about s- social action and social justice. And one of the guys on the, on the panel was a man from, I think, Detroit. And he said one, one of the best things that could happen is that there would be Christian African-American police officers. And I thought, that is a solution right there. Oh, God, that you would raise up more Godly, Christian, African-American police officers. And friends, real quick, let's just do this, this thought experiment. Imagine if you were a police officer. Your job every day is to respond to the most wicked things that happen in your community. Shots fired, you go towards the shots. Someone dies, you go on the scene. Someone is abused. The woman is abused. You show up. And the man's raging, now ready to attack you. Wives, what if that's your husband getting called to those calls? You okay with that? Friends, let's not forget that police officers put their lives in danger every single time they put on that uniform. Proverbs 29, 14, the Christian Standard Bible says this, a king who judges the poor with fairness, his throne will be established forever. I love it. ESV translated this way. If a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. Proverbs 29, 26, many desire a ruler's favor, but a person receives justice from the Lord justice from the Lord. And, and here's how I want to end this. Justice will come and reign, friends. Like, we have a bright future out ahead of us. Uh, if our image was back up, recreation, you realize that Jesus Christ is going to literally take over the globe physically. And he's going to rule and reign. And you know who's going to rule and reign with him? Us. Us, we're going to be the governing authorities. And you know what? The beautiful thing is, at that time, we will be made righteous. Not able to sin any longer. There is only one who is just and 
who will actually bring final justice. His name is Jesus. And friends, we have a lot to look forward to. We can work for it now, and we should work for it now. And whenever you see injustice, you should not be on that side ever. Ever. Because if you're on the injustice side, listen, you're on the losing team. <laughs> not, that, not just that it's wicked, but injustice will ultimately be destroyed. You realize that. And that should cause us to rejoice. All over the globe, righteousness will reign. Fairness will be the norm. Equality will be the regular. I can't wait. You remember in the parable of the, the good steward, Jesus says, you've been faithful with a little. You rule over five cities. You've been faithful. You rule over 10 cities. Friends, I think that's pointing to a reality of the coming new heavens and new earth that the Christians who are made righteous will govern in righteousness. We will rule and reign with Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians, don't you know you're going to judge angels? You're like, mm, that's interesting. It is. But you're going to be equipped with that capacity to judge rightly. Isaiah 6 or I'm sorry, 9, 6 to 7 says this, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of, of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, that's what we have to look forward to. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And he will rule with justice and with righteousness. And we will rule and reign with him. And friends, we can realize a piece of that kingdom come now. Because in the what's called sanctification process, which simply just means you becoming more and more and more like Jesus every day, all too slowly, all too painfully slowly, but yet little by little by little, you are becoming a more loving, compassionate, caring, just, righteous person. You're being made into the image of Christ. That's what we've been predestined for. Romans 8, 29. It's, you've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And Philippians 1, 6 says, He who began a good work in you will complete it. So friends, we're tasting the appetizer of that now because we are becoming more and more and more like Jesus. And I pray that that means for you, you're becoming more and more and more nuanced. Like, you're not hard right, hard left. You're able to look at an issue, back up out of it, and see it for what it is biblically. I hope that's you. I hope you're becoming that type of person. Jesus is righteous in our place. And when we receive his righteousness to cover our unrighteousness, he on the cross takes our unrighteousness and the justice that God owes us for our sin. It's good news, friends. This is the gospel. That Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. And I, for one, can say I rightly deserve it. 
Like, I, you know, we sing some of these songs and I see myself. I hope you see yourself. I often think back to the person I was before God got a hold of me and I think, God, you should have killed me. I was so wicked and so blind to my wickedness. That's the amazing thing. I didn't even see it. I had a twisted, weird way of thinking I was in the right. Unbelievable how blind I was. Friends, tonight we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we do every week. Uh, Jesus' body was broken so that ours would not have to be broken forever in hell. It's the good news. Is that for those who are in Christ, He took justice. He stepped into the justice of God for us. We owe an unpayable sin debt and Jesus said, I'll pay it. I'll let my body be broken. I'll let my blood be spilled in place of them. He took our sentence, all of us who are Christians. And we, by the Holy Spirit, are being made more and more and more like Him. And I I love it. Day by day, oh God, please make me more like Jesus. Let it be a daily prayer that the Holy Spirit would make you more loving, more compassionate, uh, and more like Christ. Able to love your neighbor as yourself.